Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And you can check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Monday, October 11th, 2021. And we're going to continue our discussion of an interesting hearing that occurred in the House of Representatives on September 30th, 2021, just week before last. And in my last episode, episode 65, I gave some important background and context for why the NCAA and big-time college sports business interests went to Congress in the first place. So it might be a good thing to check out to put this episode into proper focus. But in this episode, we're going to talk about the witnesses who testified, what their objectives were, and what the totality of the messaging was on the backside of this hearing and how it is going to relate to what the NCAA's next step is. And I believe that a lot of what happened at this hearing on September 30th relates to the work of this Constitutional Committee. And uh, in the next few episodes, I'm going to be getting into the Constitutional Committee and talk about some of the themes that have evolved since the formation of that committee was announced in early August of 2021. Before I get into the witnesses and their testimony, there are a couple of important threshold issues to discuss here that really frame the entire analysis of the NCAA's re-engagement with Congress and then this constitutional committee and then its new public relations campaign that is built around reimagining college sports and the NCAA's relationship to it, which is so uh, interesting to me and ironic because the messaging that came out of this hearing on September 30th was really just a return to where the NCAA and Power Five were in the fall of 2019 and then their initial foray into the Senate in February of 2020. But I talked about this a little bit in the last episode and the impact and influence of NCAA lobbyists, lawyers, and public relations spin doctors. And we have to remember that the NCAA's objectives now have to be viewed through a political lens. We are in the political arena. And the NCAA has spent millions of dollars on its lobbyists and lawyers and public relations people to carefully control the message. And there have now been seven hearings. And with one exception, the, all of those hearings have been orchestrated by the NCAA. They have been NCAA friendly. And the witness lists reflect that. And the substance of the testimony reflects that. And I'm going to talk about uh, some of the important omissions over the course of these seven hearings. But one is that to this day, to this day, through seven hearings and about 35 witness slots, and I talk about it in terms of slots, there are a handful of witnesses who have testified more than once and some who have testified too many times in my judgment. But in those 35 witness slots, there has not been a single current revenue producing athlete testify, which means that there hasn't been a single current 
black revenue producing athlete to testify. Not one, not one big time power five football player, not one big time power five men's basketball player. Those crucial omissions are not coincidental. They simply are not coincidental because the NCAA's worst nightmare is to have a current African-American football or men's basketball player speak to the truth of their experience, their perceptions of the business model, and their relationship, their true relationship to the university. And regardless of how you may feel about the regulation of college sports, about athletes being paid, about the nature of the business model, I think you would have to agree that if you're going to have seven hearings over 20 months and you're talking about a business component of the college sports enterprise and you're listening to all of the NCAA Power 5 propaganda about how much they care about these athletes, you absolutely have to hear from the very athletes whose labors make the entire business enterprise possible. So what does that tell you? It speaks to the power of the NCAA as an institution. And in that last episode, I played some clips and talked about some comments by Representative Lori Trahan, who is a Democrat from Massachusetts. And for the first time in these seven hearings, a a member of Congress called out the NCAA's lobbying campaign as an important component of how this whole discussion has played out. And she said, you're a big corporation, like many big corporations, and you have powerful people doing your bidding including some of the most powerful lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And when we encounter this in Congress, we are wary of big corporate interests hiding their true motives. And we don't want you hiding behind your lobbyists, and we don't want you bringing your lobbyists in after a piece of legislation is on the table to defeat it if it conflicts with your selfish commercial business interests. And that is happening with the NCAA. One of the reasons that I named this podcast the Big Amateurism Monologues is that many of the tactics that the NCAA has employed in its offensive campaign in Congress, and remember, prior to 2019, the NCAA would get hauled before Congress and they would tell Congress what it wanted to hear, but Congress has never legislated. This is a much different scenario and a much different environment. The NCAA went to Congress. Congress didn't come to the NCAA. And the NCAA isn't going to come to Congress unless they have their ducks in a row. They have a strategy. They have laid the foundation through their lobbyists and public relations people and all of their inside the beltway connections. And two of the most powerful tactics that both big amateurism and big tobacco have used, and the same is true for big pharma, big food, name your big, is that you have an almost insurmountable advantage if, one, you set the narrative from the very beginning. You set the terms of the debate from the very beginning. And then, two, you are able to use your massive public relations machinery and all of the minions that you have out in the field, both in the industry and then also in the media, to create almost instantaneous consent to the narratives 
that you have constructed from the very beginning. And that's exactly what happened here. Those very first hearings in the Senate, and remember there were seven hearings, six have been in the Senate, one in the House. But those early Senate hearings were designed almost exclusively to set narratives that are NCAA friendly. And then once those were set in, once those were amplified in the media, once those were recycled again and again and again through NCAA propaganda, through powerful spokespeople at every level of institutional power in this country, because the NCAA has been cultivating those relationships for decades. But once those were cemented in, those narratives have become virtually unchallengeable. And among the false narratives is that we have to preserve the integrity of college sports. And this whole name, image, and likeness compensation issue is an existential threat to the college sports marketplace and to all of these values, these propagandized values, amateurism, the student-athlete, the collegiate model, all that stuff. And if we don't build airtight guardrails around this threat to college sports and the NCAA isn't in absolute iron-fisted control over that marketplace, then college sports as we know it will come to a fatal collapse. And I want to go back to some of the early work of the NCAA's federal and state legislation working group. And the NCAA doesn't talk a lot about this working group now. And that's, that's interesting because it served its purpose and it cemented in some of these guardrails and principles that have simply been incorporated into the debate up to this last hearing just a couple of weeks ago. And on October 29th, 2019, the NCAA Board of Governors issued a press release that received fawning coverage in which the uh, Board of Governors took the interim report of this working group uh, that was issued on October 23rd of 2019. And they made it sound for public relations purposes like they were going to modernize their rules and they're going to press for these important changes for student athletes to bring us into the 21st century. But the release, and this is on the NCAA propaganda website, and this is from the NCAA. And I just want to read a little bit from this statement and then look specifically at the governing principles that the NCAA Board of Governors lays down as adopted from this interim report. The title of this press release is Board of Governors Starts Process to Enhance Name, Image, and Likeness Opportunities. And it talks about in the continuing efforts to support college athletes, the NCAA's top governing board voted unanimously to permit students participating in athletics the opportunity to benefit from the use of their name, image, and likeness in a manner consistent with the collegiate model. And in this context, they're using collegiate model as a substitute for amateurism. And interestingly, in all this rhetoric about name, image, and likeness, you don't hear the word amateurism. It's all about the collegiate model because amateurism has a bad name, increasingly bad name on the street. And then they say that the Board of Governors directed each of the NCAA's three divisions to immediately consider, immediately consider updates to relevant bylaws and policies. And then they quote Michael Drake, who was the chair of the Board of Governors at the time, and he was also the president of Ohio State University. And Dr. Drake says, 
We must embrace change to provide the best possible experience for college athletes. Additional flexibility in this area can and must continue to support college sports as a part of higher education. This modernization for the future is a natural extension of the numerous steps NCAA members have taken in recent years to improve support for student-athletes, including full cost of attendance and guaranteed scholarships. <laughs> that reference. And this is one of the tactics that the NCAA uses, and that's to say, these athletes have it so good. Why are they even asking for this stuff? We're going to consider it and do it because we think it's the right thing to do. But these athletes really don't have anything to complain about. And the NCAA is just brilliant at using these false narratives to make it appear as if it is acting in the best interest of the athletes it purports to represent. And this cost of attendance reference is really just a breathtaking hypocrisy because the cost of attendance scholarship exists because of antitrust litigation filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And they were forced to provide it, or they provided it voluntarily, quote unquote, with the Ninth Circuit's boot on its throat. And the Ninth Circuit required cost of attendance scholarships. So this notion that the NCAA just did that on their own and independent of pressure from external regulators is simply not true. But here are the eight principles here that the NCAA lays out as fundamental to any modernization of NCAA rules as they relate to name, image, and likeness. Number one, assure student athletes are treated similarly to non-athlete students unless a compelling reason exists to differentiate. And that's really the only positive pro-change bullet point among these eight bullet points. The next one is maintain the priorities of education and the collegiate experience to provide opportunities for student athlete success. Number three, ensure rules are transparent, focused, and enforceable and facilitate fair and balanced competition. Number four, Make clear the distinction between collegiate and professional opportunities. Five, make clear that compensation for athletics performance or participation is impermissible. Six, reaffirm that student athletes are students first and not employees of the university. Seven, enhance principles of diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. And eight, protect the recruiting environment and prohibit inducements to select, remain at, or transfer to a specific institution. So seven of those eight principles are limiting principles built around the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, the student athlete, and the collegiate model. And we're back to this Orwellian construction of modernization. Well, yeah, we want modernization, but only built around principles that prevent it, that make it almost impossible. And I just want to note that if you just read through those eight principles, you may not come away with a sense of exactly what the Board of Governors is asking for here. But when you look at this list, it's very carefully crafted to preserve the status quo while operating under this illusion of modernization. So they talk about maintaining education priorities. Then they want to make clear the distinction between professional and amateur. They want to make clear that there should be no pay for play. They want to reaffirm that athletes can't be employees. They want to protect the recruiting environment. All of those plant in the public 
consciousness, this illusion of change, when it was really doubling down on the status quo and building a case that ultimately was going to be used to take the status quo and then ensconce it into federal law through these extraordinary federal protections and immunities of antitrust immunity, the preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws, or any laws that interfered with the NCAA's compensation limits, and then a federal declaration that athletes couldn't be employees. That's what this is about. And it's just a brilliant rhetorical technique. It, this is propaganda in its purest form. But these quote unquote guardrails were put into the debate by the NCAA at the very beginning, and they became virtually unchallengeable. And when you look at what the NCAA was saying just before this very first hearing in February of 2020, it's very clear that they're connecting this initial framework of modernization and name, image, and likeness opportunities for athletes with these limiting principles in their engagement with Congress. And then on January 24th of 2020, just a few months after this October 29th press release, the NCAA released a statement from the federal and state legislation working group co-chairs on name, image, and likeness efforts. And it says, the federal and state legislation working group reported to the Board of Governors that we are continuing our efforts to provide the NCAA membership with guidance on the expansion of student-athlete name, image, and likeness. We are following closely the activities of state legislatures and interests by federal lawmakers, and we share the goal of a system that is inclusive, equitable, and fair to our more than 500,000 athletes nationwide. We are committed to working with key stakeholders to achieve that end. Student-athlete benefits have expanded significantly in recent years and now amount to more than $3.5 billion annually in scholarship support alone. While we agree that changes in our rules are in order, we are striving to avoid the myriad of potential consequences that could upend a system that has opened doors for millions of young people to earn degrees and pursue dreams, in many cases debt-free. We are especially concerned about abuses, and potentially harmful influences with respect to recruiting, a practice unique to college sports. I'm going to stop right there because just in that last paragraph, the NCAA has incorporated several big lies and the NCAA builds its propaganda around these lies and you hear it again and again and again. This notion that the NCAA is responsible for $3.5 billion annually in scholarship support is an absolute fraud. The NCAA doesn't award a single penny of scholarships to current college athletes. They don't pay athletes tuition room board. The universities do that. But the NCAA claims credit for it. And what they're really saying here in this paragraph is, yeah, we're going to make some changes here, but boy, look at all the things that these athletes get. And look at the stakes here, because if we offer meaningful name, image, and likeness opportunities, then this entire business model is going to collapse. This is the fatal collapse argument. And then they talk about the myriad of potential consequences that could result in a system that has opened doors for millions of student athletes and young people get to earn their degrees and pursue dreams, in many cases, debt-free. Well, that would only apply to athletes that have full athletic scholarships, which means they're talking about Division One, And this is a silent dog whistle that pits the interests of these 
ungrateful full scholarship recipients and their free education against the regular students whose parents are trying to scrape together enough money to pay tuition. And it is just a really unfortunate narrative that they paint here. And then they also want to make clear that they're worried about abuses and harmful influences with, with respect to recruiting. That's bringing in the bad actor narrative. And then they say a patchwork approach where each state possibly has different rules may exasperate this concern and would make it impossible to conduct intercollegiate athletics at a national level. These varying laws could also undermine our commitment to provide student-athletes with broad-based offerings and comprehensive support. As a result, we are developing approaches that the NCAA Board of Governors may consider as it determines how the association can best engage with members of Congress to craft a national solution. Finally, we believe that we are committed to enhancing support to college athletes in a system that features students competing against students, not a system in which students are paid employees. So th this statement is just loaded with NCAA propaganda and fear-mongering and the sky is falling and this will result in a fatal collapse of intercollegiate athletics. But the most important thing, and remember this is January 24th of 2020, just two and a half weeks before this February 12th hearing in the Senate, and it was the first hearing on name, image, and likeness, they say that they want to develop approaches that the NCAA Board of Governors may consider as it determines how the association can best engage with members of Congress to craft a national solution. So in this press release, they're not talking about voluntary rules changes. They've made it clear that this is about going to Congress. And then on February 12th, 2020, we have this introductory hearing in the Senate where the NCAA is laying the foundation for one of the most audacious regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports. And one of the interesting things that I observed in this hearing on September 30th, week before last, was that it was much different in some ways than the prior hearings or the earlier hearings in 2020, starting in February of 2020. Because in the early hearings, the goal was to set these narratives, to set the terms of debate and then to limit the debate within these very narrow parameters that were all NCAA friendly. And the NCAA was very successful in laying down these limitations on nil. And honestly, the limitations were so draconian that if the NCAA had gotten their way, there wouldn't be much of a nil marketplace. But what happened, it, even though the NCAA didn't get the legislation they wanted from Congress, the NCAA friendly guardrails that were built in from the very beginning through the federal state legislation working group that was an NCAA working group full of NCAA insiders. Those limitations carried forward throughout the debate and into the formulation of state nil laws, into the formulation of these executive orders, into the formulation of these university policies. And all of the important guardrails are included there. And that explains why there is striking similarity among all of the regulations of name, image, and likeness, whether it's a state law, an executive order, or a university policy. But the NCAA was extraordinarily successful at setting that narrative, and it has paid off. Now, in the fall of 2021, they no longer have to try to set any public narratives. They're done with that. What they're doing now and the way they're thinking now in their re-engagement with Congress is how many senators, how many House members 
can we get to vote for a piece of legislation that gives us as much as we can get? They're counting votes. They are in the trenches through their lobbyists, through their lawyers, through their public relations spin doctors to get as many votes as they need to pass a piece of legislation that gets them one step closer to the iron throne of college sports regulation. That's it. And they've dispensed with some of the disguises that they used early on. And that was evident in this hearing in the way that the witnesses, particularly Linda Livingstone, the president of Baylor University, talked about some of the broad themes and broad principles, like Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and like this displacement theory and like the us-against-them narratives that hit the interests of revenue-producing athletes against everybody else in the system. And those narratives are indefensible. But I don't think the NCAA gives a damn about that anymore because what they're trying to do is pitch narratives and pitch arguments in the short term that are going to get votes on a congressperson by congressperson basis. That's what this is about. And a good example of that is that in the early hearings, particularly this February 2020 hearing in a subcommittee of the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, the pitchman for the NCAA, Anthony Gonzalez, who was the first witness to testify, and Mark Emmert and Bob Bowlesby and the president of the University of Kansas refused to use the buzzwords. They wouldn't say antitrust immunity. They wouldn't say preemption. They wouldn't say athletes can't be employees because that first hearing was designed to get their foot in the door, to get the Senate to buy into the notion that the NCAA needs their help and that the Senate should provide it in the form of NCAA-friendly legislation. But talking about preemption and antitrust immunity and athletes can't be employees, talking about those explicitly would potentially have brought some criticism because those are, those are extraordinary powers and immunities. And the NCAA didn't want the public to understand the audacity of the power grab they had planned. So this first step was just get your foot in the door. And then over the course of those hearings, some of these other themes came up. And when they went to the Senate Judiciary Committee in July of 2020, they had to acknowledge their quest for antitrust immunity because that's the only reason that the Senate Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction. <laughs> there will be no other reason for that committee to hold a hearing on athlete, quote unquote, compensation for name, image, and likeness. So it's been a very purposeful, calculated, long-term strategy. And now the NCAA is going office to office in the Senate and the House, and they are counting votes. A related and important narrative is that you just can't come to Congress. If you're a corporation or you're representing some kind of economic interests, you simply can't come to Congress and say, you know what? We don't want to have to be subject to federal litigation. We don't want to have to be subject to state regulation. We want to treat our workforce in a way that doesn't force us to bear the responsibilities of being an employer. You just can't walk into Congress, regardless of what interests you're representing, and ask for those things. There had to be a plausible reason to get those issues on the table. And in this debate, that issue was name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA, which had demonstrated outright hostility to name, image, and 
likeness rights and compensation for athletes. In fact, the O'Bannon case was a name, image, and likeness case. The NCAA spent $140 million to avoid paying a penny in name, image, and likeness compensation. And they only shifted their strategy when they saw the name, image, and likeness debate that evolved and really expressed itself through state legislation because the NCAA had dug its feet and because the NCAA had refused to act. As that initiative gained momentum, the NCAA saw that vehicle as a way to get these audacious regulatory power grabs in front of Congress and to do it with a straight face. And I've said all along that Nil was simply a Trojan horse. The NCAA had zero intention of providing any meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation. And the fact that they never did that on their own is proof of it. This interim policy isn't a change in legislation. They had uh, name, image, and likeness legislation in the hopper for eight months, and they sat on it and then told the division to, to cease and desist in January of 2021 when they lost their advantage in Congress. So now, for all intents and purposes, the Trojan horse has disappeared. The very reason that the NCAA and Power Five justified their congressional campaign from the very beginning no longer exists. Yet here they are in the House of Representatives in September of 2021, making the same requests, the same demands, the same extraordinary federal protections and immunities that they were asking for in 2020 as a precondition to providing name, image, and likeness benefits. Then they were saying, we cannot offer these benefits without these extraordinary protections and immunities, because if the nil market exists without these federal protections, then college sports as we know it will collapse. And that has proven to be a false statement. The games go on. We're still playing. People are watching. College coaches are still making their seven to eight figure salaries. All these athletics directors are making their seven figure salaries. All the NCAA executives, notably including Mark Emmert, still making his multi-million dollar salary. The fans are watching. The advertisers are paying. The sky hasn't fallen. The games go on. So now that the NCAA is back in Congress, it simply doesn't have any legitimate reason to ask for these protections and immunities. So in the absence of a legitimate name, image, and likeness-based reason to ask Congress for these extraordinary protections and immunities, the NCAA has simply pivoted to trying to portray in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that cannot pay for themselves as victims of a potential threat. And the, the very title and theme of this hearing is a really good example of that. I talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but the name of the hearing is a level playing field, colon, college athletes' rights to use their name, image, and likeness. And the level playing field metaphor was used initially by Anthony Gonzalez and then to a lesser extent by Emmanuel Cleaver, the co-sponsors of, of this bill out of the house, to talk about leveling the playing field between college athletes and non-athletes. The theme was, look, these athletes are denied rights that any regular, quote unquote, regular college student can, can exploit. 
in a free economy. And the athletes should be allowed to do the same things that non-athletes or regular students can do. And that's a kind of a false narrative in and of itself because athletes are not regular students, particularly revenue producing athletes. They are highly valuable income producing units. They are employees and they should be treated or evaluated. Their interests should be evaluated through the lens of the most highly specialized, most valuable university employees. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to some of the suggestions that I have on how we could make some intelligent changes in the college sports marketplace. But in this transition, in the post the nil market transition to protecting NCAA interests, all of a sudden that level playing field has completely morphed into a level playing field among and between in-system athletic related interests. And one of the themes that developed at this hearing was to pit the interests of these revenue producing athletes against the interests of non-revenue producing athletes. So I want to start with these witnesses and then talk about them quickly up to Livingstone. I'm going to spend a little more time with Livingstone because she was an important witness and she serves a very important role for the NCAA. So there were a total of five witnesses. We had Mark Emmert, NCAA president. We had Jackie McWilliams, who is the conference commissioner of the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association. That is a conference of 13 historically black colleges and universities. And McWilliams is African-American. Then we had Kemi March, and she is an athlete at Washington State University. They're in the Pac-12. It's a Power 5 school. Ms. March is also African-American. Then we had Ramoji Huma, who is the executive director of the National College Players Association and Athletes' Rights Advocacy Group. And then, of course, we had Living Stone. Of these five witnesses, four were offering NCAA-friendly talking points and testimony. Huma was the only counterweight to those four witnesses, which is pretty much the structure of all of the hearings except the June 17th hearing, which I, 2021, that I talked about. But the template has been you have basically three to one, four to one ratio of witnesses pro NCAA versus pro athlete. And let's start with Mark Emmert. And Emmert, in some ways, is the easiest witness to just sort of dispense with because he's nothing more than a human talking point for the economic interests of the Power Five. And that is a role that he has served well since becoming NCAA president in 2010. And Miles Brand did essentially the same thing early in his tenure when the big time powerful football interests were trying to beat back criticism from the have-nots in the big-time college football world. And Brand went to Congress and peddled that theme, and he did it in his public speaking. And Emmert's been doing it from day one. And so much of that dynamic relates, again, to the Board of Regents' decision and the economic freedom and power that came to the big-time powerful football interest as a result of winning that lawsuit and um, obtaining complete financial freedom from the NCAA, which at one time had a complete monopoly on televised football and football revenue. So Emmert was spewing that very same propaganda in September of 2021 that he was spewing in uh, 2019 leading up into 
his testimony in February of 2020 in the Senate. And he's testified, I think this was his fourth time appearing as a witness. And he just goes in and makes his talking points, occasionally fields a question that would, an honest answer to which would require him to acknowledge the ridiculousness of the college sports business model. But those questions have been few and far between. Then we have Jackie McWilliams, and Ms. McWilliams, as I mentioned a minute ago, is African-American and is the conference commissioner of an HBCU conference. She was an interesting witness because the interests that she represents are among the most marginalized interests in the entire NCAA structure. And I think the HBCUs have really struggled in the NCAA model mainly for a voice, just to have a voice, a meaningful voice. But this conference that McWilliams represents is a Division II conference, and that's important because from a financial standpoint, from a business model standpoint, Division II college sports are irrelevant. They don't have any revenue-generating products. And at the institutional level, the institutions have to decide how much money they want to spend out of their general university operating revenues and expenses to fund these sports. And that's the way it works for 90% of the college sports marketplace. It's only in the Power Five that we have this belief, this deeply entrenched belief that in order for a athletic program to exist at a power five school, it has to be fully self-sustaining. And that is a component of Miles Brandt's conceptualization of the business model. But one of the things that I found really interesting about Ms. McWilliams as a witness is that in the prior six hearings in the United States Senate, there was not a single NCAA witness or any witness from a division two or a division three interest. It was all power five, it was Bob Bowlesby, commissioner of the Big 12. It was Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC. It was uh, Power 5 athletics directors, a Power 5 university president, Power 5, Power 5, Power 5. And the reason that you didn't have a Division II or Division Three interest in those initial hearings is that they have absolutely no relevance to the business model. And this whole discussion, it has nothing to do with their interests, except to the extent that they're downstream beneficiaries of block grants from March Madness money. But in terms of their true importance to the revenue side of this business model, they don't exist. And McWilliams bottom lined her testimony right down the line of what the NCAA wants. You know, we need a uniform federal nil standard. We want to avoid pay for play. We don't want athletes to be employees. All, she was right down the line. But all of those interests are really outside of the reality of the schools that are in her conference. So the question is, and again, you have to view this through the lens of NCAA lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations experts. What do you get by having McWilliams? And you get a few things. First, we have this new environment that exists where some of the talking points that the NCAA was making in February of 2020 just have been decimated. So they're looking for new arguments, new justifications for their re-engagement in Congress and a new face of that re-engagement. And in this new environment, the features of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, this pro-athlete bill that came from Senators Blumenthal, 
Booker and Murphy. But under that bill, which is uh, on the other side of the earth from all these NCAA friendly proposals that have been offered up, there's a revenue sharing component of that. And then there's another component that is focused on health and safety requirements. And one of the issues that has now come up, and I don't think it's a legitimate issue because there are means testing components in the Athletes' Bill of Rights. What the NCAA has done, and they started this in the June hearing before the Austin decision, before the July 1st name, image, and likeness laws went into effect. But they had uh, Wayne Frederick, who is an African-American university president at Howard University, and he's also a physician. So he could speak with some credibility to some of these health and safety the issues. But both Dr. Frederick and Ms. McWilliams were making the same argument. And that is under this athlete's bill of rights, small schools and particularly HBCUs can't be burdened with the expenses that would fall on them to comply with these requirements under the athlete's bill of rights, both the revenue sharing component, which is ridiculous because their products don't generate revenue. But on the health and safety expense side, they're saying, wait a minute, this is going to apply association-wide and this is going to put us out of business. We can't do that. And that's a fair argument if it were true that the Athletes' Bill of Rights was intended to apply to the downstream smaller schools. I don't think that's the case. And I'm going to break down all these bills that have been proposed in the Senate, including the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And I think it could be clear. And maybe one of the things I think the Athletes' Bill of Rights advocates should come out and explicitly state. We're going to have means testing here. So these concerns about Division II schools, Division III schools, lower level Division I schools on the cost side are, are going to be taken care of. They don't have to worry about that. But that, I think, is where she landed. So that's Emmert and McWilliams. Now let's go to Ms. March. And she is an African-American golfer at Washington State University. And I found Ms. March's testimony, particularly her written testimony, really interesting. She has some good stuff to say about the way that athletes are treated versus non-athletes. And her initial testimony really relates to that issue, which was the central theme of the Level Playing Field Act that Gonzalez and Cleaver initially tried to tap into, this distinction between how athletes are treated versus non-athletes are treated. And Ms. March had developed an app. It was kind of a networking app that had nothing to do with athletics or her notoriety as a women's golfer at Washington State. So this should have been a no-brainer. And she applied for a waiver, wasn't granted. I don't know all the circumstances there. And that's an interesting discussion because between 2015 and I think up until about 2019, the NCAA and the conferences had routinely approved waivers just like this. I think once they started their campaign in the Senate, they pulled out of the waiver market. We'll may get to that in another episode. But in any event, her request was denied. But Ms. March, there's this interesting transition from talking about the interest between athletes and non-athletes. And then she pivots to this level playing field theme that has nothing to do with non-students. It is a comparison of her interest as a non-revenue producing athlete to the interests of revenue producing athletes. And at the same time, Ms. March pivots to discussing her interests through the lens of her identity as a woman and a woman of color. So she brings gender and race into the equation, but only in the context of the non-revenue producing interests. And so she says, in tandem with the financial policies that are implemented, it is, it is important to discuss how to support all athletes 
within whatever new system exists. In much of the discourse, I have heard about the changing landscape of the name, image, and likeness. Both the public perception and political questions seem to be centering around the stars of the collegiate sports world, namely football players and basketball players and mostly men. The concern here is that the lesser lucrative sports are getting lost in the conversation, and so by extension, so are the players. Our unique perspectives, opportunities for sport participation, and passions outside of sport are just as relevant and important as our counterparts in the typical revenue-generating sports. And then the next paragraph begins, I know this too well as a female athlete of color currently playing a sport in women's golf that isn't the most lucrative or visible. And that's why I feel as though it would be wishful thinking to believe that someone like me would ever be on equal financial playing field as a star quarterback. What Ms. March is articulating here is the displacement theory. And this came about in the summer of 2020, and it ran through Harvey Perlman, who was dissenting from the Uniform Law Commission's decision to go forward with name, image, and likeness, and then was amplified by North Carolina Athletics Director Bubba Cunningham, and then after him, Duke Athletics Director Kevin White. And the theory itself, I think, originated in part from this lead one company led by Tom McMillan, former basketball player, Rhodes Scholar. He was on the 72 Olympics team and he served in Congress and he's been a, a spokesperson on college sports issues. But lead one and McMillan shill for power five athletics director interests. And they have some interesting stuff and I'll talk about them too. But the theory of displacement was that there is this fixed zero sum nil marketplace that exists out there, that all of these nil opportunities are going to go disproportionately to big time football and big time men's basketball players, like the star quarterback. And then logically and necessarily under the zero sum theory of uh, the nil marketplace, then money and opportunities are going to be stolen from non-revenue producing athletes. The advocates of this displacement theory back in the summer of 2020, you know, is either, it was either the star quarterback, I think Kevin White talked about the star point guard, but the message was clear that revenue producing athletes, these greedy takers who were treated like royalty and they just want more, more, more. They're going to be stealing opportunities and money from non-revenue producing athletes. The theory itself was silly on so many logical levels. There is no such thing as a zero-sum nil marketplace. But when that theory was put out there by Lead One and Cunningham and White, they got some blowback, particularly Cunningham and White. The reason that they got blowback is when you look at the actual athletes, who are implicated in that construction of the displacement theory, the revenue-producing athletes who are being demonized are largely African-American, and the athletes who are the victims are overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly white. And that is the truth of the demographic of those two stakeholder groups, which have been pitted against each other through this displacement theory. It was forced into the debate to make the case that this nil marketplace will have a corrupting influence on the integrity of college sports and the interests of the quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes, overwhelmingly white. 
And that narrative just sort of disappeared because Cunningham and White were forced to walk back the way that they initially pitched it. And then, oh, yeah, we support nil rights and all this stuff. And another interesting feature of this displacement theory is that Cunningham and White, in different ways, used this Student Athletic Advisory Council as a vehicle to suggest consensus for the displacement theory. And the National SAC Council wrote a letter in October of 2019 in connection with the release of interim report on name, image, and likeness. And it was called, We Are the 100%. And they went through exactly the same arguments that Ms. March is making in her written testimony here and that Cunningham and White put into the public domain through this displacement theory. And that document was used to suggest consensus. But it's very clear that in this transition from comparing her interests to non-athletes, then into comparing her interests to revenue-producing athletes, she's using her voice as a female athlete of color, which is great. That's an important voice. But how can you couch things in terms of race and gender and then say that the people that you're uh, concerned about here and dominating the nil market are football players? and basketball players and mostly men and not acknowledge that a disproportionate number of those men are African-American. They are men of color. And before I move on to Remoji Huma, I just want to comment on how Ms. March closed out her testimony, her written testimony. And she has a conclusion section and she says, in closing, I share my experience today in the hopes that you will appreciate that the opportunities afforded student athletes with the use of our name, image, likeness impacts all student athletes, whether we are entrepreneurs creating apps or the starting quarterback. Having a national standard that will support all student athletes is important. So the bottom line, non-revenue producing athletes are victims and we need preemption one national standard. And so again, you need to look at the way that this hearing was packaged, how it was presented. What was the visual? Well, the visual was that you had five witnesses, three women, and the only athlete interest that was represented was an African-American woman. So through that lens, you look at the audience, you look at a Democrat-controlled committee, you have a substantially white committee, and you have a critical mass of progressive white women. And it's my belief that in its congressional strategizing, the NCAA has moved more and more towards pitching their case, the way that they present their case, the face of their case, going to moderate white women in both the Senate and the House, and women who are sensitive to themes of gender, of race, bipartisanship, the appearance of cooperation and compromise and some greater goal, and most importantly, principles of equity. This was an equity hearing. And Ms. March's testimony went right to that. She portrayed herself through the lens of uh, being a woman of color. And that resonates with these moderate progressive 
white decision makers in the House and the Senate. And that really came through in this uniformity discussion. And everybody agrees on uniformity. Nobody's talking about what that actually means and what it would look like and how it would benefit NCAA institutional interests. But the way that this hearing was packaged, it really disguised the reality of the big time college sports business model rather than explaining it and dealing with it. And again, that goes right to what Laurie Trahan said at the very beginning of her questions to Mark Emmert. And that is this lobbyist thing's a problem here. And and you got your people running all over Congress trying to twist arms. And the witness list, the presentation at the September 30th hearing was the manifestation of that lobbying campaign. So let me talk about Mr. Huma, Ramoji Huma. And then I think I'm going to defer to the next episode of discussion of Livingstone. But her testimony is so important, it's probably worth a standalone episode. But Ramoji Huma is the executive director of the National College Players Association. And he is a former Division One athlete. He played football for UCLA in the late 1990s. This is the fourth time, I think, that Huma has testified in Congress. He testified three times, I believe, in the six Senate hearings. Then he, he testified in the only House hearing here. He's become a go-to guy, and that has some pluses and, and some negatives. I mentioned earlier that Huma is African-American. I think that that is important. But he's not a current athlete, and he's not a basketball player. African-American basketball players at the highest level have a unique interest in this entire debate because their labors fund the entire NCAA bureaucracy, the entire NCAA national office, and all of the excesses and these absurd salaries at the executive level and all of the downstream beneficiaries. And I've talked about that at length. But Puma, he understands the issues and he has good people talking to him. The board of directors or the advisory board, the NCPA has some really good people, but it's a shoestring nonprofit. It doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't have a lobbying presence. And although Huma has a voice and I think people in, in Congress would take his call, it's, that's a much different dynamic than having an inside the beltway, silk stocking law firm who has spent decades building relationships in Congress doing your bidding for you. And that's what the NCAA has through Brownstein Hyatt. The athletes simply don't have that. And then the other thing I would say about Huma, and this is a, really an issue throughout public debate, and this happens in the media, it happens in academia, it happens in Congress, is that you have this small handful of quote unquote experts that are identified. And it's very easy to just say, okay, well, let's get that guy or that woman to speak on this. And Huma filled that role. He's done it admirably, but he's very understated, very quiet, Sometimes he, he will go right through something. And what he says, when you read what he says, it's much more powerful than what you hear because of the way that he communicates. And he'll hit on something that's really important, but it's just part of this, you know, rat-a-tat-tat through his response. And it's really good stuff, but it gets lost a little bit. The, the other thing about Huma is that because of his involvement with this Northwestern case, I, I talked at length in my pay for play episodes about this 2014 case by Northwestern football players to uh, try to form a union. And the lead athlete in that was an African-American quarterback named Kane Coulter. But the NCPA was involved in that case and Huma was involved in that case. And at the time, both the NCAA and later Northwestern tried 
to pitch those interests as nothing more than stooges of the steel workers union. And Hume has never backed away from acknowledging that the uh, steel workers union and other labor organizations have supported the work of the NCPA. But in the narrative, the NCAA narrative and the anti-athletes as employees narrative, the NCAA propagandized that as the interest running through these corrupt labor unions that are anti-American. The usual stuff that the NCAA does to try to create a black hat, white hat, uh, binary view of the interests. And when Huma testified on September 15th in the Senate Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by uh, Tennessee Republican Lamar Alexander, who's since retired from the Senate. But when Huma was being asked questions in the Q&A, Richard Burr, Republican senator from North Carolina, he just got on his high horse. It was really t difficult to listen to, but he was going at Huma like the steelworker stuff, and he explicitly invoked that. And he was trying to smear Huma, and Huma, to his credit, just in a very nice professional way, came back and acknowledged, yeah, he he's, relies on advice from the Steelworkers Union. But I, I really like Huma. He's in some ways just been stepping into the ring and he's willing to take the punches and he's punching back. And I think that's good. But in, in the context of what he said at this hearing a uh, week before last, he interestingly said he would be okay with a national uniform nil standard so long as these other issues that relate to health and safety. And health and safety has been an important part of his message and his organization's message. And that is disproportionately a football issue. And the NCAA has just propagandized the hell out of that. It was dragged kicking and screaming into the discussion through a class action suit in 2014. And it's now pitching itself as being on the vanguard of uh, concussion-related research. Again, only the NCAA would try to get away with that. And they have gotten away with that largely. But I was making that point that if we get the Athletes' Bill of Rights issues on the table, then we can talk about a national nil standard. But the other thing that he was saying, because one of the issues that came up here, and again, it was fascinating, and I'm going to talk about this more when I talk about Livingstone's testimony in the next episode, because she came back to this, is that the NCAA and only the NCAA should be in charge of regulating at the national level. And I talked about the importance of that in the last episode, and it restores relevance to the NCAA as a national regulatory authority. But Humo is very clear about making sure that in any federal legislation, the NCAA has absolutely no role. He doesn't want a bill where Congress grants all these extraordinary protections and, and immunities under the guise of name, image, and likeness uniformity, but then puts the NCAA in charge. And that happens again and again. Both these bills that are proposed and the same thing has happened in some of these class action settlements, including the concussion settlements. So the NCAA has completely ignored the issue, but then in this settlement that got the plaintiff's lawyers a bunch of money, the NCAA was going to have control over all aspects of a, any NCAA concussion-related guidelines and protocols. Again, you're back to having the same people who created these problems in charge of the future of college sports and making transfer.
transformative change in college sports. So Huma was good on those points. He didn't want to isolate the nil issue. He wanted to join with these other bigger athletes' rights issues. And he wanted to make very clear that the NCAA simply needs to be completely out of the picture if Congress is going to legislate around college sports. And the Athletes' Bill of Rights, like a lot of these Republican-friendly bills, has a third-party commission in charge of any regulation of college sports at the national level, but it explicitly excludes and purposefully excludes anybody involved with the NCAA, current or former, and the same is true with big-time college sports interests. So again, it is just on the opposite side of the earth from these other proposals, which require that you have that on your resume, NCAA or Power 5, in order to hold a decision-making seat in any quote-unquote third-party administrator or corporation or commission. And then the other thing that Huma did at this hearing, he's done this in in the prior hearings as well, and this is really an important thing that he's contributed to those hearings, and that is when the NCAA is talking about these draconian protections and immunities, but disguises it through the language that it uses and doesn't come out and explicitly say preemption or antitrust immunity or athletes can't be employees. Hume has called them out on that and said what he just said means antitrust immunity or it means preemption or it means athletes can't form unions. And that's an important call out. And I wish there had been more of that from the senators and the representatives because they just let the NCAA rattle right through their propaganda. And I think that's in large part because they simply aren't as well-informed as they need to be. And the NCAA, far from serving an educational function and helping these decision-makers understand the business model, the NCAA has gone to extraordinary lengths to disguise those issues and their true intentions. And again, that's exactly what uh, Representative Trahan was getting at in her questions to Mark Emmer. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close out this episode. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about Dr. Livingstone and the importance of the themes that she identified and emphasized throughout the hearing. So as always, thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I look forward to having you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.